You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. If you have a Bible or want to follow along, the text is, a, is Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'm going to look there. Um, <clears throat> screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis. Some of you, I imagine, have read the screw tape letters. It's uh, letters from a senior devil to a junior devil who has a patient who has become a Christian, and the junior devil's job is to try to get him to defect. And so he's getting advice from the senior devil about how to do that. And early in the book, one of the things the senior devil tells the junior devil to do is get the guy to church. That's how we're going to get him out of the faith. Get him to church and make sure he notices um, you know, all the people who sing out of tune and whose boots squeak and who have double chins and dress oddly. You know, he's basically saying, um, you don't have to attack the truth of the faith. You can attack, it, attack its plausibility by showing him the lame people that go to church. And, you know, it's not a terrible strategy, right? <laughs> but it's interesting because it's, it's not a truth attack. It's a plausibility attack. And it, it makes the faith seem like it's probably not true. And what Solomon, or whoever writing in the guise of Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, is saying in uh, this part of Ecclesiastes is uh, a plausibility question, not a truth question. A plausibility about the faith. And for him, the plausibility issue is this. It's that Christians and people who go to worship seem to take God so lightly and so unseriously that it makes it feel like it can't be true. Because if it were really true, it would, uh, knowing God and being in his presence would affect us in a far more uh, profound, dramatic, serious way. And so that's his complaint, and we're going to unpack that a little bit and think about it together today. So let me pray for us first, and then we'll read the scripture. Uh, Father, none of us feels um, adequately reverent, and we can't just muster it up. So we ask that you would come and that you would make your presence profound to us, that you would cause us to take you with the weightiness that we all believe is important. Uh, Come help us and speak to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first seven verses here in Ecclesiastes 5. He says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen instead of Excuse me, I'm going to use my larger print version of this. <laughs> it says, draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. 
and this is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us because he loves us. So uh, Kohelet, or Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, uh, is making the case that what he calls under the sun, there isn't any meaning in our lives. Under the sun meaning life as we experience it without reference to God, whether he's there or not. He basically says, looking at the world just as it is, the material world, uh, without reference to God, there doesn't seem to be any point in it, right? You know, if you're, uh, the old uh, existentialist said, if if your origin is insignificant and your destiny is insignificant, then your life is also going to be insignificant. And uh, so the preacher, Kohelet Solomon, has, uh, he's like, look for all these things that might give him meaning in his life. Like acquiring wisdom was a big thing for him. And, you know, no one got wiser than Solomon, but he said it was vanity. He said it didn't lead to any meaninglessness. It was just like trying to herd up the wind. And then uh, justice, seeking for justice in the world, was only vexing and oppressing and didn't create meaning. Trying to get pleasure out of life and make life consist of that didn't work for him. Accomplishments, he had great accomplishments. They didn't work for him either. You know, they just couldn't find anything that could support the weight of a human life under the sun. And so what his argument in the book is, is you need to look beyond the sun to find a serious meaning in life. If you're going to find something that's weighty enough to support what your longings are and your aspirations and your uh, suspicions about what a human being is. You need something beyond just what the world, material world, offers. So he says, you got to fear God um, instead of just trying to make your life work out on your own terms. you got to fear God. But it's, he doesn't say that easily. It's, it's one reason a lot of people like Ecclesiastes so much is because uh, Faith is never easy for Kohelet, for Solomon. He, he gets at it hard. Like he would um, expect to and hope to find meaning almost anywhere else. And he comes to fear of God sort of because he's run out of other options. And he's a guy who kind of lives now on this uh, knife's edge between uh, complete despair about life, like suicidal despair about life, and robust faith in God. And he doesn't feel at all this broad middle ground that most people live in where, you know, we're just trying to be happy and live our lives and raise our families and go along to get along and all that kind of thing. And yeah, sure, we have faith in God and sure, we feel some of the loneliness and meaninglessness, but generally we're okay. He's got none of that broad little middle section. He's just, it's despair or it is faith in God. And so this is why he's mad in this passage is because he's come to his faith through a hard road. And when he goes to church with the other people who share his faith, they're glib and they're frivolous. And they treat his hope in a trifling way like it's no big deal. And it guts him, right? Because it's like they're attacking the plausibility of this one tiny little place of hope he's found in his life that he's putting all his weight down on. And these people are treating it like it's nothing. Right? Like it's nothing. Silly example, but do you remember uh, when Arthur, uh, who sought the grail in the Monty Python movie, went to the French castle and he says, I am Arthur. I seek the grail. And the silly Frenchman said, I told him we already got one. Right? Like Arthur is totally earnest about the grail. The Frenchman's totally frivolous about it. 
and it's just the worst of taunts, right? Because you're, you're treating uh, frivolously this thing that is ultimately important to me, and I don't have anywhere else to go with my hope, and so it kills me when you trifle with it. That's kind of what he's saying. Um, so they're, they're wordy and foolish in their prayers. They're glib about God. They just burst into his presence, yakking instead of listening with no reverence, no awe. They're casual about vows they take in his name and think they're no big deal. And he's not just being like the snarky Presbyterian grump who's saying, uh, that church over there is doing it wrong. You know, they're not as reverent as we are, and that's stupid, you know, and I'm glad we're not like them. He's not like just criticizing other churches as a hobby like some of us like to do, but he's, uh, he's saying, look, you, you're killing me. You're killing me. I, I, I'm barely hanging on to this hope with my fingernails, and you're just making it so hard because you take God so lightly, and uh, you're messing with my hope. So it's almost like, you know, somebody who's a skeptic who, you know, has kind of heard things about Jesus here and there, comes to a place of pretty great despair in their life, and they're thinking, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of at my wits end and rock bottom. I need something. And they turn on religious television and think, well, maybe everybody's always said I should, you know, look into Jesus. And they turn on religious television and they see fools behaving foolishly who clearly seem not to believe what they're talking about. And going away not just laughing at that, but brokenhearted by it. Like, dang it, that was, I thought maybe there was a chance there. But looking at, looking at what I see here, there can't be, right? This glibness, this frivolity undermines hope. And that's what Solomon's feeling and talking about here, feeling like this is pushing me back towards despair. So the point he makes isn't, isn't a hard one, and I think most of us believe this. It's just hard to feel. But the first thing is that we ought to take God seriously. You know, and you know you should. I know I should. You know, just pay attention to who he actually is. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. That's a little harsh, isn't it? <laughs> but also a little sobering. They don't know what they're doing. They're doing evil. Don't be rash with your mouth. Don't let your heart be hasty to utter words before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. That's not a spatial reference. You know, it's, it's talking about God's transcendence. He's separate from what he's made. He is infinite and above us, right? We, it's who he is, and when we're glib, we're not paying attention to that, right? We're, we're treating him as if he's just uh, like us or as if he is somehow domesticated, right? He's not only beyond us because he's separate from his creation, he's also morally beyond us because he's always absolutely just and wise in a way that none of us is. And this is supposed to be um, a fearful thing for us to know and feel. You know, it's, it's the kind of thing that makes you start talking with a softer voice, right? And being a little slower to speak, uh, raising your eyebrows, you know, when you're realizing, oh, Oh, he's not like I thought he was. He's not just like me. And so this awe and reverence is supposed to come because we realize we don't have God sorted. Like, we don't have him figured out. You read the Bible, man, nobody that gets close to God finds him to be like they thought he would be. Like, nobody uh, has their expectations met with God. You know, most of the time people are like, 
I don't understand you at all. I don't know what you're doing. You're shocking me and surprising me, and I don't get it. Um, and nobody that gets close to God ever reacts by becoming more casual and more flippant. Right? I mean, that's not what happens when people get close to the living God. They uh, find themselves bewildered and in awe, kind of a mix of both, and fear is one of the words that people use to describe it. Think about the ark. Um, you didn't get to the ark in Exodus, so, but you've probably seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Apparently, that, apparently that's what the ark looked like. I don't know about the haints that came out of it when the Nazis opened it, but, you know, the box looked right. And, uh, but the Ark of the Covenant is a uh, bewildering and terrifying thing. You know, they, they built this Ark to commemorate the Exodus. Um, they had Aaron's rod was in it, a copy of the Ten Commandments was in it, a jar of manna was in it, and, um, and they hid it, Right? It had to be hidden in the Holy of Holies in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple. And you didn't want to get near it. You sort of did, but you sort of didn't, right, because it was terrifying. Philistines captured it. Do you remember this? This was in the time of the judges after they got in the promised land, but before uh, the kings came along. Um, Philistines captured it, and they thought, oh, awesome, we got Israel's God. We're going to co-opt him into our pantheon, and they put him in the temple of Dagon. Do you remember this story uh, in Samuel? Yeah, the next day... Uh, Dagon's head had fallen off and his hands had fallen off. <laughs> and then the next, next day he was totally prostrate, their idol in the temple. Israel's God, the true God, couldn't be co-opted and put in anybody's pantheon or under anybody's control. They could not harness his power like the Nazis wanted to in the movie, right? They were going to get the ark because they thought it would make them invincible. Uh, they didn't read about the Philistines. If they'd gotten the ark, <laughs> things would have gone badly for them. The Philistines... Uh, not only did they have these events in the temple, they all started getting tumors, and they had a plague of mice in their towns. And so they moved the ark into a different town where they all got tumors, and there was a plague of mice, and they moved it to a different town. It happened again, and they're like, what do we do to get rid of this thing? And they went near the border of Israel, put it on a cart, built golden tumors and golden mice, and said, ha, <laughs> get, and the ox went straight to Beth Shemesh, back to Israel, right? Uh, they said, get this away from us. This God is not co-optable or controllable. This God is terrifying. And they sent him back. So, but Israel, it was fine for them, right, because they're believers, right? So they, they got the ark, going to have a big uh, procession. They're going to, David, when he came along, he's going to bring it into Jerusalem. And so they're carrying the ark along, and then they kind of stumble and trip and, Uzzah does what? Do you know the story? He reaches out to steady the ark, and God kills him immediately. And David is like, what are you doing? Who are you? I, he is so nonplussed by God's reaction to uh, Uzzah touching the ark that he says, don't bring it here. Don't bring it to Jerusalem. Keep it away from me. I'm terrified. I don't, I, don't get, I don't understand this God. I don't have this God figured. I don't have him controlled. Keep it away from me. So it goes to uh, um, Obed-Edom the Gittite's house. <sighs> yeah, that's his name. That you, it's in the Bible for everyone to tell for eternity. Obed-Edom the Gittite. I'm like, he's probably thinking, thanks <laughs> for bringing the ark to me. 
But his house, you know, is enriched and blessed because the ark is there. And eventually they bring the ark into Jerusalem. But what, what do you discern by looking at the ark about God, that you've got him figured out, that your intuitions about him are probably right, that you can write a country song and just say, I think God is like, you know, my grandmother or something. You know, you, you're like, ah, I don't, I don't understand him. I don't have him sorted. It's different in the New Testament, though, right? Like uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus comes and, you know, he's standing up there. He takes Peter, James, and John, and there's this apparition of Moses and Elijah with him, and Jesus starts to shine. And, um, and the disciples say, this is so awesome. What a great worship experience. They say, boom, they're on their faces, terrified to even look up because they're coming in contact with who Jesus really is. It's God. And they don't think, this is awesome. I've got him sorted. They think, who is this? He was preaching and saying, you know, a really winsome sermon about how if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with God. And everyone went, that's bizarre, and we're all leaving, right? And the disciples didn't leave, and Jesus said, aren't you going to leave too? And they just, they said, no, we understand what you're saying because it's about the atonement and what you're going to do on the cross. And, no, they just said, I, we, we don't have anywhere else to go. And that was their strong statement of faith is who else has the words of eternal life? We, we have no idea what you're doing and why, um, but, but we just don't have anywhere else to go, they said. And then when Jesus called Peter the first time even, you know, he had done the They'd fished all night and not caught anything, and then Jesus said, fish on the other side, because fishermen love advice from preachers, and, and they catch the fish, and, and Peter runs up to Jesus, and what does he say? This is awesome! You're the Messiah! I knew it! This is going to be great! Now, he runs up to him, he says, uh, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He doesn't, have, he doesn't have any sense that he's got his arms around who God is or how to control him or live with him. So if this is so consistent through the Bible, and you could have added uh, stories to that, I'm sure, um, Isaiah in the temple, you know, um, if that's the consistent theme of the Bible, why do we take God lightly? How does that even happen? Right? You'd, it's surprising that that would happen. It's very surprising for people who are new coming in to our uh, churches from outside to figure out how we're as casual as we are about God. And uh, so, you know, people assume by looking at us that Christianity is just, it's a privately engaging, personal, devotional experience. Not that it's the truth about the world or the God that, to whom we almost answer, right? They just assume that we don't mean it really. We're just saying this is just something I believe that's helpful to me because I happen to be helped by it. And um, so I think it's a little bit our fault that the church, I mean, that people are able to take God lightly. And part of that is well-intentioned because I think when we want to talk about the grace and love of Jesus Christ and his mercy to us, we um, have to push through so much resistance from people's guilty consciences um, and from their bad experience with being loved, you know, and to try to persuade people that you're really loved and that you're really welcomed and really forgiven is hard, and there's a ton of resistance to that. And usually the way we try to communicate that is by um, 
using as tender a language as we can find to use and sentimental language that we can find to use. And I understand that and I try to do that. Um, but it's easy in trying to do that to convince people that God is tame and domesticated and not fearful and that anyone can just traipse into his presence saying whatever they want to say and it's fine. And that's not actually true, right? Um, so it's very hard to hold that balance, but I think that the American church in trying to be winsome has uh, sort of uh, defanged God in the public imagination uh, so that people won't be afraid of him as much. And there's some error in that. But the other thing which is true for people inside and outside the church is that we just naturally think of religion in an instrumental way. That religion is something that uh, we use God for so that we can get what we need and want. Um, that we make arrangements and bargains with God. Um, so like he's the mascot of my life and my success. He's there to help me and encourage me and support me so I can get what I want and do what I want and be who I want. And if he doesn't come through in the ways that I want him to, the ways that I expect him to, then I get mad at him and even will say things like, I tried Christianity and it didn't work. You know, I tried to get Jesus to sponsor my success and I didn't succeed, so he's not true, right? Yeah, we don't say it that frankly, but that's kind of what we mean. Um, and we've kind of taught people that it's okay to approach religion like a cafeteria plan. You know, you go in and you pick and choose the things that you want from God and you leave off the things that you don't want from God. And he says here, instead of coming in to talk and say what you want and about how spiritual you are and what you think, that maybe you should come in and listen and not be rash with your mouth and take God on his terms, which are the only terms on which he has offered to us, right? Um, so when you pray, he says, don't, don't indulge in glib chatter and adding up a lot of words. You know, he's saying it's about God. Your prayers are about God. Jesus said something like this. He said, don't, don't think you'll be heard for your many words. God's not, a, he's not fooled by your piety. You know? He knows what you need before you ask him. So let your words be few. That's why the Lord's Prayer is so short. right? You know, it's succinct because um, when you add up words, a fool's voice has many words. And it can become irreverent easily. It's why, too, also, you know, you think what you're going to say to God and what you come in with your glib words saying is so different than, like, what you hear from the Psalter, like what God had his people sing uh, in the Old Testament. You know, the Psalms are horrifying and terrifying and totally inexplicable. You're like, you know, who with pure and reverent thought can fear his anger as he ought? We don't ever say anything like that in church, but, you know, that's what God wanted them to sing about him. You're like, well, maybe we don't have him sorted, you know. Maybe we're not as reverent. And vows, trifling with vows, promises we make to God. You know, I always think about Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts who said they were given all the money from the proceeds of their land sale and they only gave part of them. And God killed them dead in church, right? I mean, so you lied to the Holy Spirit and they died that day. And that's the New Testament after the resurrection. <laughs> like, um, God is no more sortable now than he was. All right, so, um, 
I don't know. I struggle. I don't know. You may too. Like, how do you hold together the mercy and welcome and embrace and tenderness and the family language God gives us about our relationship with him and the Ark of the Covenant and uh, the terrifying nature of falling into the hands of the living God and these things that are both very frankly said in the Bible. You know, how, how do we hold those things together? Uh, usually we say you don't want to have a servile fear, but you want a filial fear. Servile fear is the fear that uh, God is just going to squash and destroy you, that you're just afraid of him um, because you think he's going to crush you. It's not stupid <laughs> to have a servile fear of God. I mean, think of the Passover. You did get to the Passover, right, and Exodus. The, the children of Israel weren't spared in the Passover because God was sweet. They were. <laughs> he was sweet to them. But the reason the angel of death didn't visit their houses was because of what? The blood over their door. The blood over their door, an atoning sacrifice. The lamb killed, the blood spread on the door so that God passes over. Killing the lamb instead of killing their firstborn is what that comes down to. And man, that is primitive and gruesome sounding. Um, and nobody picks that part of the faith off the cafeteria line, right? But there's no getting around it. They got God's mercy and were spared because there was a sacrifice for them. And the servile fear that the Egyptians felt was appropriate <laughs> in their fear of God uh, because he's no one to be trifled with. But Christians' fear for God is filial fear. It's a child's fear. It's the, it's the respect and reverence and awe and trust that we place in parents in the best situations. And that's the fear that we're meant to have of God, not afraid that he will not love us anymore or that we have pushed him too far this time, but the sense that I belong to him, he's claimed me, I'm his, and I know that he's never going to turn his face and heart away from me. Uh, but, but nothing in that uh, takes away any of our reverence for him, right? It shouldn't. It shouldn't, doesn't take away our awe for him. Because our welcome by God is predicated on what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. If the sacrifice, sacrificial lamb, his blood weren't over us, uh, then the servile fear that we think we ought to have might actually be appropriate. The reason we have filial fear is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we know God's grace through him. So the ark, again, terrifying, right? Hard to figure out, you know, the... Only people who saw the ark basically when they weren't in transit were uh, was a high priest once a year, right? Going on Yom Kippur, take uh, get very clean and get very clean clothes, get a rope tied around his leg in case he dies in there. They can drag him out without having to go get him. Go behind the incredibly thick curtain in the that guarded the holy of holies, taking blood to sprinkle on top of the ark, blood of, of a sacrificial animal. But when he sprinkled the blood on top of the ark that's so terrifying and uncontrollable, uh, they sprinkled it on the top of the ark. And you know what the top of the ark of the covenant is called? It's the mercy seat. It's the mercy seat. And so um, the priest was going in appealing to the mercy of God on the basis of a sacrifice 
in the place of the people. Um, so when Jesus Christ comes, he goes in as the high priest and as the victim into the Holy of Holies and makes a once-for-all sacrifice for us. And when his sacrifice at the cross was completed, what happened to the curtain that kept people away from the ark for their own protection? It was split in two from top to bottom. So that now we have access to God, which you would never want if it weren't mediated, if it weren't through Jesus Christ. You don't want access to God unless you're coming through Jesus Christ. But through Jesus Christ, we have access to the mercy seat of God, welcomed in to warm connection to him, friendship with God even, without any loss of reverence. That's why uh, when God sets the table for us, we're told this is a foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb. This means that the, the father's throwing a wedding banquet for his son and is inviting you to sit at his table with him. Like, that's only the people you most want to be with you. Unbelievably warm welcome that God is willing to have you home with him and back with him and love with him. But what's spread on the table? Uh, the bloody death of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice of the ultimate lamb of God. Because apart from what Jesus has done for us and what God has done for us in Jesus, uh, there is no welcome that's safe for us. But in Jesus, we have the welcome of God. Right. So, a couple of quick exhortations. One, don't let the foolishness of Christians steal your hope in Jesus. Christians will let you down. Christians will embarrass the faith and give you plausible reasons not to believe it. But don't let that happen. <laughs> um, because Christians aren't Jesus. And we're sorry. Yeah, where we've let you down. Um, but we're not the hope. Jesus is the hope. And then don't let the triviality or foolishness of the church rob you of reverence and awe for God. Because even in a church that expresses God's grace so warmly like this one does, and I know Pete, um, God is still God. And his warm welcome, the warm welcome is given to us by a transcendent God whom we hold in awe. And then lastly, don't let God's uncontrollability and transcendence keep you from feeling the sincerity and warmth of his wide open welcome of forgiveness and grace for you.